Hello, this is Steve Mirens. Now, today's conversation is a discussion between myself, Peter Edelman, Erica Olmsted, and Lobat Sadrashemi about the Supreme Court of Canada decision in RV Wong, a 2018 decision that is at the intersection of criminal and immigration law. Now, Peter and Erica were counsel for Mr. Wong at both the British Columbia Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court of Canada. Lobat was counsel for the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers, which intervened in the decision. Now, the issue in this case was whether a person who pleads guilty to a criminal offense can withdraw the plea if they were unaware of the immigration consequences of pleading guilty, in this case, deportation. In other words, Mr. Wong pleads guilty to a criminal offense. At the time, he didn't know that his doing so would lead to him being deported. He then learns this after he has already pled guilty and after deportation has already commenced and wants to withdraw his plea. Can he do so? I'm posting this conversation to both the Borderlines podcast, which is a podcast about Canadian immigration, refugee and border related issues that Peter Edelman, Diano Kanachoff and myself host, and as well as to Lockhands, which is a second podcast that I recently started, which uh, features discussions about recent Supreme Court of Canada decisions across a variety of topics. Both podcasts can be found on all podcast players. If you want to follow the people who are uh, in this episode, Lobat's uh, Twitter handle is at LobatLB, at L-O-B-A-T-L-B. Erica and Peter, who work together, uh, can be found on Twitter at EdelmanLaw at E-D-E-L-M-A-N-N-L-A-W. And uh, you can also go to their website, edelman.ca, for more info. I can be found on Twitter at smurens.com, at S-M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S, which is also my website, smurens.com. So uh, I hope you enjoy today's conversation. charged with trafficking a small amount of cocaine to an undercover police officer, and he pled guilty. And the sentence that he got was nine months imprisonment. Um, and he found out after, after he had pled guilty that he would be deported from Canada because of that, uh, both the, the conviction itself, which is serious criminality, um, and because of the length of a sentence, he wouldn't have the opportunity to bring an appeal to the Immigration Appeal Division to try to keep his status. Um, he's been in Canada for around 20 years. He's got a wife here, a Canadian-born child. And so this was really significant for him. And he wanted to appeal to withdraw his guilty plea. Um, the state of the law in BC at the time was that you needed to pre- present that you had some sort of viable defense in order to successfully withdraw a guilty plea. And so um, the first counsel who had uh, conduct of his appeal put forward the idea that maybe there was some defense around entrapment, but it um, later seemed like that would be a difficult thing to argue. So um, we took over the appeal from another counsel. And and then at the BC Court of Appeal, there was three judgments where each judge split on what they thought the state of the law was uh, in terms of the test withdrawal. And so how does a guilty plea work? And I know you both do criminal law. So is it 
Well, just how does the process work? So a lawyer, is it kind of like you see in the movies where people sit opposite a table and, you know, we'll offer you five years, I want what is it? How does the process work? Uh, well, Crown normally will provide uh, an initial sentencing position uh, and they'll say, um, if you plead guilty, we will offer or will consent to um, giving uh, something like a six month jail sentence or a nine month jail sentence. And so a person can decide based on what Crown is offering, whether or not that's better than risking taking the matter to trial and then getting convicted and getting a more serious uh, sentence. Uh, Plea, a guilty plea is often considered a mitigating factor, and so you're going to get a lower sentence if you plead guilty normally than if you take it to trial and lose. And, and plea resolution, there'll be a lot of plea resolution discussions with Crown in advance, and the, the resolution discussions can turn not just on the sentence itself, but can often turn on other issues. So, for example, uh, in Mr. Wong's case, he might have agreed to plead guilty to simple possession as opposed to possession for the purpose of trafficking or trafficking. Uh, even though he would have gotten the same sentence, uh, it wouldn't have had the immigration consequences. I mean, in this case, given the length of the sentence, it would have. But if he had gotten in some cases, you'll see where uh, we might agree to a plea to a lesser offense, where somebody might plead guilty to assault instead of assault with a weapon or uh, assault instead of an assault causing bodily harm uh, to avoid, in, in our situation, it's usually immigration consequences, but there may be other reasons for people to be pleading to other charges uh, or pleading with respect to the facts. The underlying facts can often have consequences, both in the, uh, for example, in the immigration context or uh, in the civil context where people admitting to certain facts uh, or accepting certain facts at, at, uh, in, in a sentencing might uh, uh, create other issues for them. So those are negotiations that will happen with Crown. And then we may go in with either a joint submission before the court. In other words, the Crown and defense are agreeing. And uh, generally, the courts will be deferential to positions that are agreed to by, uh, by Crown and Defense. In other cases, there, there might be an agreement to the plea, and then it will be left up to the court what the sentence should be. So both Crown and Defense will go in with different positions on sentence, uh, and then have what we would refer to as a contested sentencing. In other words, you, you plead guilty to the offense, but then disagree about what the proper sentence should be. And in this case, what was the timeline like between him making the plea and then him realizing that it jeopardized his permanent resident status. Um, I, I think it would have been around the time that um, CBSA sent him a letter telling him that they're going to write a report finding that he's inadmissible. Um, and they, they usually will do that within a few months to a year of, of the conviction. Yeah. In, in this case, he was almost finished serving his prison sentence when he realized that there were immigration consequences. He got the letter, and I think he was in jail when he got the letter. That's the letter from CBSA saying they were going to commence deportation proceedings. Correct, that they were considering deportation. There's a notice letter that you that you receive as a permanent resident that says, uh, we're thinking of proceeding, um, tell us why we shouldn't. And he got that letter while he was in jail. Okay, and so it's at that stage of the appeal that you both are retained. And what's the, you, there was a brief consideration of entrapment by another lawyer, which you dropped. And so what was your argument that you made at the Supreme Court? 
We're at the court of yeah. appeal first. Well, we weren't actually sorry. We weren't actually retained at that point. Uh, another other counsel had filed an appeal at the BC Court of Appeal, uh, and that counsel, for uh, for other reasons, couldn't proceed with the appeal. Uh, and uh, we had actually picked it up just before the hearing in the BC Court of Appeal. So we hadn't prepared the factums in the BC Court of Appeal. Um, and there was about, I think it was half a page that dealt with immigration consequences. And, and that ended up being what the case turned on in oral submissions. Uh, and then um, in, in the Supreme Court, the issue... The major issue for the Supreme Court was that the lower courts, when I say the lower courts, the courts of appeal in the various provinces disagreed about what the test should be. And so in Ontario, there was a view that if you were not informed of a relevant consequence, that was in and of itself prejudicial. Uh, and therefore, you know, and when we say relevant collateral consequences in the cases in Ontario, they also involved, for example, driving uh, and one of the major cases is a case called Quick in Ontario that dealt with the situation of somebody who didn't know, and he was a professional driver, and was misled and not informed that he could lose his license for many, many years, almost automatically as a result of the conviction uh, after he went in and pled guilty. Um, in, the, uh, in other cases, you're dealing with immigration consequences. Some of the other courts, the, the Alberta court and the Quebec court in particular, took very strict views. And they were of the view, not only did you need to show that you uh, were not informed of a relevant consequence. In fact, Alberta didn't even feel that, these, that being deported was a relevant consequence. In other words, you didn't need to be informed about being deported at all. Uh, the... Um, and then uh, even if you did need to be informed, you needed to show not only that you would have done something differently, but also that you had a viable defense. In other words, that if you were going to not plead guilty, uh, that, you, uh, that you could, that you had a defense at trial. Um, and that was obviously, from our perspective, very problematic. And, but the courts of appeal were all over the place with respect to the test and how to deal with what is uh, a valid guilty plea. And, and this was a, an issue that had much broader consequences, not just with respect to withdrawing guilty pleas, but this also defines what a valid guilty plea is in the criminal justice system. And so that's where this became important and why we saw a number of interveners come in, uh, including the, the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers. But there were, I think, three attorneys general uh, and at six or seven um, public interest interveners that intervene on a number of things. Uh, and I think that's where there was a lot of interest around this because it was defining how guilty pleas should happen. And maybe Lobat, you can talk a little bit more about why the interveners were interested in the broader issues with respect to the case. Sure. Um, from the perspective of uh, the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers, Carl, um, we definitely wanted to contribute in setting out clearly that immigration consequences um, are the kinds of collateral consequences that are severe and that people should be informed of prior to making a guilty plea. Uh, we also thought that uh, there needed to be clarification about whether or not incompetence of counsel, like that framework, was a necessary one uh, to figure out, like, did it matter whether your counsel was incompetent um, in terms of whether or not you were informed? Uh, we argued it didn't matter. 
Um, it shouldn't matter whether or not they were incompetent in not informing you. If you weren't informed, you weren't informed. Uh, and the court agreed with that. We also spent time in our factum and made the decision to spend our five minutes talking about the degree of awareness a person has to have of the immigration consequence. So in Mr. Wong's case, uh, it wasn't an issue because as Erica and Peter explained, he had no idea that he was going to face an immigration consequence at the time that he was um, faced with um, making a decision on his plea. But we know that there are lots of cases where a person has some sense that they may face immigration jeopardy, but they don't know the precise, but they may not know the precise outcome. And there are a lot of bad, well, what we think is bad case law um, from the Court of Appeal on this issue in the immigration context where the courts have found, well, you, you, you know, no one is guaranteed the right to uh, know the precise outcome at the time of making a plea. And so, you know, you can't expect to know that. And you knew that there was some immigration jeopardy. You knew that if you got into trouble again, something could happen to your immigration status. And that is sufficient to say that you were aware of the immigration consequences. We think that's really dangerous because um, a lot of people are somewhat aware. But we would argue that, you know, at the time that you're making a plea, just like you have the right to know about the criminal penalties that you'd face, you should know the degree of jeopardy you would face. Like you should know whether you would get an appeal at the Immigration Appeal Division. You should know whether your stay would be automatically canceled and there would be no uh, recourse for you and it would be automatic uh, deportation because those that kind of information could influence your decision on your plea. So we the reason we made that argument was because we were worried that you know, even if the court found that immigration, you had the, you had the right to be informed of immigration consequences, what, what, you know, is that a bit meaningless if the, you're found to be aware of those consequences simply by having some sense that your immigration status could be affected? But the court did not say anything about that. And so when you say that, Mm -hmm. that there should be a sufficient level of knowledge or being informed as to the consequences. Are you talking just what the law is or like even a breakdown of the probability of an appeal succeeding? No, what the, I mean, so part of the why, uh, I think part of why the courts of appeal have found that it's sufficient is based on this rationale that you, you're not, you shouldn't ha have a right to know the precise outcome because you can't really know. And so like you don't know, in fact, what you're going to be sentenced to at the time of plea. So, it, but what we argued is, well, there are precise things you could know that are set out in IRPA, like in the Immigration Act, um, and you should at least be told that. And that's not what the case law says. That doesn't say that um, you have the right to know those precise outcomes, just some degree of immigration jeopardy. Well, I'll elaborate on what Lobat was saying about incompetence of counsel, because that was also an issue that was written in the factum when we took the case over and it was going to the BC Court of Appeal. Um, but in terms of that issue, we also decided to, to drop it because there was questions about whether or not when the case law says someone maybe should be informed about these consequences or maybe not, how can you then say that a counsel is incompetent for not telling their client about it? 
And so then at the Supreme Court of Canada, that's a, that's also what we were saying is you can't, you know, maybe after this case, you can start you saying that counsel's incompetent if you find that it is a relevant consequence that somebody has to be informed about. But, you know, it didn't seem appropriate for that to be mm-hmm. what it turned on. And the test is really hard. There's a really high standard to, to make out incompetence of counsel to allow for the withdrawal of a guilty plea based on that. Yeah, and I, I mean, part of why we thought it was also important to argue about this, the degree of level of awareness is because it impacts what information people have to know at the front end, right? So if, if it is for immigration consequences that you don't need to know that much about it, then is it going to be sufficient that somebody just tell them, well, this, this, may, this will likely affect your immigration status, and they don't need to know in what way. Um, so we were hoping for something on that so that it would be clear what people had to be informed of. Well, and one of the big things with respect to incompetence of counsel, and I think that it was it's very good that the court did not go down the incompetence of counsel route. And in fact, the language that the court used um, for the most part on the big issues that we were concerned about from, from a policy perspective, the court agreed. So there was a dissent and the, the, it, it would appear that justice, I, I, just from the, the context of the decision, it would appear that the, the dissent was actually originally being written as a majority decision. And then it looks like Justice Roe may have changed his mind at some point in the process because you've got three judges who were writing what looks like a dissent that eventually became a majority opinion. And the only non-writer was Justice Roe. So I, I don't we don't know who changed their mind or what happened there, but the, the majority was clearly being written as, or the minority decision was clearly being written as a majority. It sets out all the facts and the, the structure of it just looks like a majority opinion. Um, but in any event, the, the, dis, the, the disagreement is on, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about this objective versus subjective test later on, but on the big issues, it's very clear that they don't go down the incompetence of counsel route. And, and that's, I, from my perspective, very important with respect to self-represented accused. And, and we have a lot of people in the criminal justice system who are self-represented. And this, because it, it, it deals with the validity of a guilty plea, in other words, for a guilty plea to be valid, it needs to be informed. And judges and Crown also have a responsibility to ensure the validity of the pleas that take place in front of them, even if it's a self-represented accused. Um, and that is the case. So a judge will explain to somebody, look, you are at risk of going to jail. You're at risk of this. You're at risk of that. Do you understand what, what pleading guilty means? Do you understand the consequences? Those types of things will generally happen with self-represented accused. And this now creates a situation, creates, uh, in, in my view, an onus on the court and uh, and the crown to ensure that there's at least access to this information, whether it's through duty counsel or through other ways. Um, and doing it through the incompetence of counsel framework created all kinds of complications that would have made it very difficult to withdraw pleas, uh, as well as um, uh, put self-represented accused in a very different situation. So as a defense counsel, are you concerned at all that if what you're saying is it shifts a little bit of the burden to Crown and um, well, the judge to show that a, a plea was informed as defense counsel, are you worried that you may now be sitting across the negotiating table with Crown 
basically indirectly questioning your competency to your client. So you're pleading guilty. Has Mr. Edelman told you about this? Has Mr. Edelman told you about this? Do you really think this is the best way to proceed? Or where do you see a line there being drawn? But I, I personally don't see a problem with, uh, and in fact, you see this in plea agreements in the United States. If you've ever seen a plea agreement from the United States, and a lot of us deal with, with U.S. cases, but in, in federal court in the United States, you'll see these very detailed plea agreements where the person is informed and, and signs with respect to each right that they're giving up. Uh, Legal Aid Ontario has created a checklist for their duty council where they go through the list of consequences where it's if you're going to plead guilty, pleading guilty in a criminal uh, to a criminal offense is a big deal. It should be a big deal. It should be treated as a big deal. And for people to be informed and for the judge to take some time and go through that, I don't I, I see that as a perfectly valid uh um, and to at least ask counsel to say, have you checked X, Y, and Z? Are you satisfied? And so if you want to speak on behalf of your client and say, well, look, we don't need to do this because I've already talked about all these things with my client. Well, if that's not true, that's clearly incompetence. If you've misled the court and you, you know, you tell the court, we, we talked about immigration consequence when in fact you haven't at all, uh, that obviously would invalidate the plea. But uh, in other cases, I don't see uh, a problem. In fact, I see it as a very positive thing to see judges uh, being more engaged in terms of making sure that people understand what it is that they're doing. I don't know if you guys have... I know you disagree strongly, right? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> so, uh, but the incompetence of counsel framework is just a really complicated framework to work with, right? The other pretty big problem with it is that what you end up having, and this is why to a certain extent, I mean, the Crown was arguing very strongly for this. Uh, and I don't understand why, even after the court told them quite clearly to stop arguing about it, they continued to argue for this in the oral hearing, which was somewhat surprising from an advocacy perspective, because uh, it was clear that the court wasn't on side. Uh, but the, the reason why it, this is a significant advantage for the crown is that you often in an incompetence case, there's just two ways that this goes. One is that what happened in this case was that the council admitted that just simply admitted that he hadn't informed him of an immigration consequence, but then was of the view that that wasn't incompetence, right? So it, it didn't require because the law wasn't clear and, and for a number of reasons, it's not clear that it was incompetence. Um, but with respect to uh, other incompetence claims, often you have a significant incentive on behalf of the counsel to put forward a case against their former client. In other words, to say, I did my job yeah. because they can lose their they can lose their license to practice law. They can lose their. And often when you're dealing with incompetence claims, you're often you're you're also dealing with some of the least competent counsel and least reputable and professional counsel. And so in those circumstances, you end up in these credibility disputes. One person says, well, I did tell him this. And the other one says, well, you didn't tell me this. And so you end up with a client having to go up against their former lawyer, which is, uh, um, it just, it, it creates a lot of complications. And, I, and I'm, I think it's a very positive thing that, uh, 
Uh, and there was, the uh, Carl wasn't the only organization. There were, I think, at least two or three other, the, I know the Criminal Lawyers Association. Yeah, right. I don't remember who else argued against it, but there were several people arguing against that framework. Yeah. And so what did the majority say? Like, what was the majority ruling in this case? That um, you have to look subjectively at what the person would have done. Would they have entered a different plea or a plea on different conditions, or would they not have pled guilty? Um, and then you look at that also with a bit of an objective lens of what, you know, it is what they're saying reasonable. Um, and so I guess as part of your answer, then they also ruled that uh, knowing immigration consequences is uh, a requirement to an informed Please. Yes, they yeah. did. And I mean, a, a significant thing that we were also asking for that we, we saw, thought that was really great in the decision was the idea of that plea resolution negotiation being something that um, is part of that prejudice. Because before all the cases just talked about, would you have pled guilty or not? And, and that was the big difference. Um, whereas what Peter was talking about earlier was the fact that you, you could have pled to a lower, a lesser included offense, or you could have pled to, or tried to negotiate a lower sentence, knowing that the significant collateral consequence consequence was going to happen. And so the court ruled that, okay, it's, uh, there's this subjective test to determine whether someone would have pled guilty. What does that look like? Good question. So you have to put it in an affidavit, which is why the appeal was ultimately dismissed for us, uh, because we didn't know what the law was at the time, and, and we didn't craft an affidavit for Mr. Wong saying that he wouldn't have pled guilty or he would have pled guilty on different conditions. So it, the appeal was technically dismissed for us on that basis. And, and I mean, what we see going forward is that you're probably going to have these pro forma affidavits for people in the situation that they file with the BC Court of Appeal that essentially says, you know, I, I would have done X, Y or Z differently because I didn't know I was going to be deported. And that's significant to me. I didn't want to be deported and separated from my my wife and child. Um, although. So I, I've mentioned now that the appeal was actually dismissed, which makes it look a little bit like we lost. But I think the court was informed by the fact that at the Supreme Court level, Crown came in and said that they agreed that lowering Mr. Wong's sentence would be appropriate. Uh, and so it's that six month less a day sentence that allows him to keep his right of appeal, which means you have this whole humanitarian and compassionate circumstances of his case considered by the Immigration Appeal Division. And so... I think in the back of its mind, the court recognized that we could resolve the consequence to Mr. Wong by way of the, the sentence appeal, which is set for next month. And, and in fact, it, it, when you look at the decision on, on the face of it, it looks like you have a lengthy dissent. Uh, but in the, on the big points, the court actually agrees. And I think in paragraph nine, if you read paragraph nine of the decision, the the majority agrees on the big issues. So like one is that uh, you can withdraw a guilty plea is not valid if you were not informed of legally relevant collateral consequences at the time of the plea. That's that's huge. That that alone overturned lines of jurisprudence in at least one or two of the of the provincial courts. And the second thing that they say is that they also agree that a legally relevant collateral consequence will typically be state-imposed, flow from conviction or sentence, and impact serious interests of the accused. 
That clearly covers deportation, but also a number of other collateral consequences. And we talked about this with respect to uh, driving, uh, you know, driving offenses. But there may be other situations where somebody faces these types of consequences, um, and they don't define the scope of those collateral consequences. So the concerns that that Lobat was raising earlier, they didn't directly deal with it, but they didn't close the door to those other consequences. So what they said is deportation clearly qualifies, but there may be other, uh, you know, it, it may be broader than just uh, straight up loss of permanent residence and deportation. So in, in terms of the big issues, um, the majority in the, and the, the dissent agree, and I think a lot of the language from the dissent is endorsed by way of that paragraph nine. And so there's some very helpful language that I think will be useful in cases going forward uh, from the, both the dissent and the majority. Um, what they disagreed on, I think, is to a certain extent, um, with respect to the court, some, some of it is a bit of angels dancing on the heads of pins. In, in other words, when you, you talk about the technicalities of the subjective versus the modified subjective versus the modified objective test, it's two sides of the same coin. So what they're talking about is if your plea was uninformed, did you suffer prejudice? And the one way of looking at it is to look at, at, look at it from a modified objective perspective. In other words, you say, would a reasonable person in Mr. Wong's circumstances have entered a different plea? In other words, would this have made a difference? And the dissent says, well, a reasonable person could well have entered a different plea. And so in, in, in those circumstances, uh, the plea should be allowed to be withdrawn. And in fact, the fact that Mr. Wong went all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada to fight his case speaks pretty strongly to the fact that he would have entered a different plea in my Why do you think but, they wanted the letter on top of that as if going to the Supreme Court wasn't enough? Well, so then the, this, this comes, the, so the issue is this, right, is that really what the difference that it makes is that if he had filed an affidavit that said, I would have done something differently. And what the, what the, the majority is saying is that you have to first express a subjective intent that you would have, which is odd to me in, in uh, is that it's speculative in and of itself. In other words, it's by definition speculative. You, you are asked to swear in an affidavit to speculate about what you would have done. In other words, this is what I would have done in the circumstances. Um, if, and, and it's very interesting to me because I, I and I, I question what in a, in a subjective, if, if I have a, a client who is, he comes into jail and he's, high as a kite after a three week bender on methamphetamines and heroin. And he's in custody and all he wants is to get out because he's coming down off his heroin. He's coming off of his drugs. He's not in his, you know, he, and he decides to plead guilty in those circumstances, not aware of the immigration consequences. He's then in my office two months later, we're preparing affidavits for the appeal on uh, of he finds out about the immigration consequences afterwards and then is the question 
in the at the time when you were there high on heroin and coming down off your meth wanting to get out of jail would you have made a stupid decision in those circumstances or would you have taken into consideration your long-term interests of uh of deportation and made a different decision or is what you're swearing in the affidavit today sober and clean after three months in rehab uh looking back the right decision to make would have been to not plead guilty and to tough it out. What's going to happen is that the Crown's then going to cross-examine on the affidavit, is going to challenge the subjective belief, and then you're going to have presumably, and, and this is what the majority says, is that you also have the application of this modified objective test. So in other words, what you what it is, it's a modified subjective test. So it's a subjective test with objective components. So if I have a client who comes in and says, well, um, I wasn't informed of the immigration consequences, but the, the reason that I wouldn't have pleaded guilty on that day is because it was the 4th of, of July. Uh, it was, it was on the 4th of June and I would never, because I believe strongly in numerology, I would never have pleaded guilty if it, I knew that it was the 4th. I thought it was the 5th. And the court's then going to look at that and say, well, that's not a reasonable, a reasonable person wouldn't consider the numerology or these other unreasonable factors. And you can then modify it to say, well, it has to be objectively reasonable. Um, the majority goes the other direction, or sorry, the dissent goes the other direction and starts off with the objective test with subjective components. And so we're really looking at two sides of the same coin. The difference being that you have an affidavit to for Crown to cross-examine on, I think, is what where the disagreement was between the majority and the dissent, and the majority is going to ins is is insisting on having these affidavits. Yeah, I I think I mean Carl spent some time thinking about this because we um, and it is uh, and there was a lot of debate about whether to. Um, advocate for a subjective test or a modified objective test. And ultimately we decided objective. And the reason being for some of the problems you just outlined, because it is so difficult to be able to determine what post facto someone would have um, pled. I think it certainly is at the time of the plea. That's what you'd be looking at. And so, and why does it, you know, if, if it's the kind of consequence that, somebody uh, in, in their position, there's a realistic possibility that they would have um, not pled the way they did had they known about it. Why shouldn't they have been, isn't that, why isn't that enough to say that they should be informed of it? And I mean, I think the difference is big in some ways because I mean, just look at this case. I mean, there was so much information about his circumstances of being in Canada, for however many, like so many years, family here, clearly a huge consequence. Why you would require an affidavit? Why can't we from that just understand that there's a realistic possibility that someone in those kinds of circumstances should be informed that they would be deported from a country that they consider their home? Um, I don't know. I. I, I I, I find it I find the majority position on it quite surprising. 
I agree with Lobat. I don't really under, like. So, at what point in the criminal justice system would someone's immigration status become known to the crown? Say, I mean, it really depends. Some crown will call up and find out. Uh, some crown just won't find out ever. Like they have no interest or, or uh, I mean, now that might change with, uh, and, and that is changing over time, but um, most Crown have a very limited understanding of the, uh, of the immigration system and may not find out until after the fact that you have, uh, that there might've been immigration consequences. Uh, they, they in large part leave that to defense uh, in my experience. And this could change, though, because of this case. Oh, after this case, I expect that both Crown and the courts are going to be much more engaged in inquiring about immigration uh, consequences. And I know just from personal experience that I've been writing a lot more opinion letters for criminal defense lawyers uh, that uh, about immigration consequences to be used not only in uh, um, in court, but more and more to be used in the context of plea negotiations. In other words, that they're, they're asking for opinion letters that can be provided to the Crown in the context of their plea resolution discussions. So like as Lobat was like the whole modified versus subjective, does there need to be an affidavit does seem like a bit of a waste of time if the Crown could just readily at the outset determine whether someone's a citizen and if not, what their immigration status is. And then the immigration consequences, it's not that complicated, at least at the basic level as to, is this going to constitute serious criminality or not? Um, so I don't, I don't understand why, as Lobat was saying, you just stop it at the first part, which is they weren't informed of the immigration consequences. See, I, I disagree. I mean, you, you might find my, my opinion letters to be a bit overkill, uh, but um, there's a lot of immigration consequences that don't have to do with serious criminality or, uh, you know, they have to do with going on probation and uh, not being able to apply for citizenship for six or eight more years, even though you're eligible today. Uh, if you get a two-year probation order, you're going to restart your, your residency calculations and you may never become a citizen or you may not become a citizen for another five, five or six, seven years. Okay, so what uh, level of collateral, like collateral immigration consequences that would meet the court's threshold in Wong? Do you think it's just deportation or a delay in applying for citizenship would also meet that requirement? But these are questions that depend on the, on the context, but I think that for competent counsel, what matters to me is uh, the consequences that matter to my clients, right? So as counsel, when I'm negotiating with the Crown, and I've often pled clients guilty on, I've made deals on behalf of clients that I personally would never make, right? So for example, a taxi driver who prefers to go to jail for seven days than to lose his license for a year. Is that a decision I would make personally? No, I would rather lose my license for a year than go to jail for seven days. For him, it was about his livelihood and his ability to. Yeah. Uh, and so those are, are. I just, but and so that's why I think the modified objective test makes sense because you still are looking at the, the, the circumstances of the individual. You're just not requiring a sub, someone to subjectively say, post facto, that they would have done something differently. You're just looking at their circumstances and saying, okay, is there a realistic possibility, taking into account their circumstances, that they may have made a different decision? 
um, had they known this. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, you know, and you gave the example of uh, someone with a mental illness and or someone who has addiction issues. Certainly, like, they may not be able to show they would have made a different decision. And I don't, um, I, I don't see why that should why that should matter if in their circumstances, when we look at it in total, um, there's a realistic possibility that someone like them would have made a different decision. Well, in Mr. Wong's case too, and we were preparing for the Supreme Court, we talked about whether or not we should file fresh evidence in the form of an affidavit. But the BC Court of Appeal decision, when they talked about um, someone needing to put that, said that they need to put something showing that they wouldn't have pled guilty. But our argument was that it's no, we don't know if he would have pled guilty or not. Maybe if he could have negotiated something better, he wouldn't have. Um, so setting aside the idea of trying to f submit mm -hmm. fresh evidence that the court might not have even accepted at that level, we, we just weren't prepared to put in an affidavit what we didn't know to be true. Mm -hmm. And then they also, they, they did expand the test. And so what we had in the affidavit wouldn't... Ne like, Mm -hmm. Yeah. In retrospect, having known the test that was set out by the Supreme Court in this, in this case, we could have sworn an affidavit that would have met this criteria in Mr. Wong's case, which is an odd situation to say that had we known what the test would have been, mm -hmm. that affidavit could have been sworn. Uh, in other words, an affidavit easily could have been crafted in Mr. Wong's case. Um, it's a bit of an odd situation. Uh, I think they acknowledge that in the decision, that it's an odd situation. Like they say, you know, this test wasn't, didn't exist at the time. <laughs> would it have, is there anything that would have prevented them from saying, we'll send it back and see if they produce this affidavit? I mean, they could have sent it back. I mean, in this case, what in, in practical terms, I think that in large part, it turned on the admission or the, the concession by the Crown that the sentence appeal should be allowed. And there's clear commentary in the, in the Supreme Court case that the sentence appeal should be allowed. Hopefully that leads to the sentence appeal being allowed and Mr. Wong getting his appeal rights at the Immigration Appeal Division, which in the end is likely a very good result for Mr. Wong. Uh, so that's, you know, that's given his chances at trial based on the overall evidence, this may not be a bad result for him. And in fact, is a good result uh, in terms of uh, made the trip to Ottawa worthwhile from his perspective, is that now he's coming away with what appears to be a conceded sentence appeal. Uh, obviously, that'll be up to the court, the BC Court of Appeal to ultimately allow that sentence appeal. Uh, but we're given the language and the concession by the Crown, we're quite hopeful that that will be the case. Okay, I think just uh, maybe as a last question, going back to this issue of informed consent, are there any immigration consequences that you don't think uh, would justify a plea bargain being set aside? One interesting question that's come up in some cases recently, and I don't know the answer to this, though, is about the ability of people to travel to the United States. So clients do ask me about that, and I'm, I don't practice in the U.S., so I... I let them know that there, there may well be consequences and they should seek out a U.S. lawyer's legal opinion. But um, I don't, it's a good question about there's such a range of consequences as to what. And we, we talked about this a lot mm -hmm. when we were preparing is what is too much? Because obviously, um, 
But and in some in some cases, it it really it's very fact specific, mm -hmm. right? Because you know when you talk about being able to go to the United States. For me, you know, I, I don't remember last time I went to the, you know, we, we go to, I go to the United States, what, maybe once or twice a year um, versus my clients who uh, are professional truck drivers and they need to be able to go down the I-5 corridor every week or they lose their jobs. Um, those are very different consequences for what would be the same set of circumstances. Um, in terms of immigration consequences, a lot of the ones that I often look at and that are very important for certain people even affect citizens, right? So you talk about the ability to sponsor, not being able to sponsor your spouse uh, from overseas for five years, that for, you know, if, if your spouse is stuck in, you know, whatever country overseas and isn't going to be able to come to Canada until you sponsor them and you're going to, you plead guilty and end up separated from them for five years. That's a massive consequence. Yeah, and I think that's one where, you know, the kind of toolkits where they're just the first question is, are you a citizen or not? And if you are, then we don't really care about the immigration consequences. That's a problem because there are consequences for citizens. Yeah. yeah. And maybe the idea there is that as counsel, it's hopeful that you can advise your client on whatever is important to them and, and find mm -hmm. out what's important to them and seek further information if you don't know. Um, as distinct from what might eventually allow for the withdrawal of a guilty plea later. Like someone's professional interest, for example, like if you're mm -hmm. a lawyer or a doctor or you're going to school or you want to be, that's your client. You should ask your client what's important to them and, and mm -hmm. hopefully help try to find the information for them. Well, and as competent criminal counsel, we, we often learn about these consequences because we hear about them, right? And you, you, you need to keep, uh, for me, I, I often ask my my about their future plans, uh, you know, professional plans. Do they want to become doctors? Do they want to become, uh, you know, they, do they uh, have is driving might be an issue. So as soon as you're dealing with driving offenses, you need to send them to somebody who understands how ICBC or the insurance companies work. You need, you need to send them to somebody who understands these things, even if you don't know them yourself. Um, and it depends on the types of offenses that you're dealing with that can have very significant consequences, like sexual offenses. If you ever want to be able to volunteer or to work as a teacher or with kids in any capacity, or if you want to work in senior centers, or if you want to work in medicine or at, like the, the consequences of, of a sexual uh, convict, a sexual offense conviction can be devastating. Um, and so those are things that people need to understand, even if they're not direct consequences uh, or state-imposed consequences. How far along is going to get applied in those circumstances is an interesting question. And I think the court left that open. Uh, what they clearly said is that when you're dealing with direct state-imposed consequences, those definitely need to be, mm -hmm. uh, um, and deportation clearly falls into that. And mm -hmm. um, one other thing that I thought was uh, a, a possible positive coming out of the case is that now there's, again, so we had Pham and Tran and now Wong all making clear that immigration consequences are serious ones and that permanent residents who've lived in Canada for a long time facing deportation, it's serious when we deport them. And the hope would be that that, that you know, that that kind of... Um, Context will soon 
hopefully inform uh, how the courts deal with what, um, that it's not simply, oh, you're an alien and so we have the right to, uh, if you breach a condition of your stay in Canada, too bad, um, no distinction between foreign national and permanent resident, which is how a lot of the case law and immigration is structured. So that's another hope from this kind of case. Last thoughts? No, thanks for having us. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thanks, and we've got to, so, but and thanks to Lobat for being our first return, our, our first return guest, who now has learned to love podcasts. And she said, <laughs> so, and we'll have to have you back uh, to talk about the. Uh, I, I, I expect that you might have some views about the Safe Third Country Agreement and the, the developments in the United States. So I do. Maybe we'll have to. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to have you back another time to talk about those things. Thank you.